Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom, coming to you over Radio. Also want to remind you that you can listen to archive shows of the Gist of Freedom on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Our show tonight, we're continuing with our reading and discussion of William Steele's book. Um, And um, also you can see a piece at Leslie's Facebook page, her public Facebook page, and that's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Gist. And uh, I would encourage you to go over to her Facebook page and check out a story uh, from William Steele's book that we'll be listening to tonight. It's the story of Seth Conklin, a white abolitionist who was murdered while trying to rescue um, William Steele's uh, family, which included Peter Gist Steele, his brother. Also on the page, you will see a story a reference to uh, a white gentleman who was murdered. Um, well, that's the Steve Conklin story. Um, story on our Facebook page involves the branding SS on the palm of a gentleman who uh, was attempting to help slaves escape by taking them on a boat uh, from Florida uh, to Canada. And SS was branded in the palm of his hand. The SS stood for slave stealer. Slave stealer. And again, you can pick up that story at Leslie's public Facebook page, that's L-E-S-L-E-Y, yes, G-I-S-T. Uh, if you're not already there, just send her a friend request, and uh, I'm sure she'll hook you up. My guest tonight is Darnell Brown. Darnell is an underground railroad historian. Are you there, Darnell? My brother, good evening. How are you? I'm okay, calling you from the first Martin Luther King Drive. Okay. And what city? This is Newcomerstown, Ohio. They made that in 1969. Okay, great. Tell us a little bit more about yourself before we get into the reading. Well, brother, uh, I'm Darnell Brown. They call me DB2. (laughs) I'm the uh, alumni of several radio stations, including KCEP Las Vegas, uh, where, of course, uh, broadcasting is my background but I'm calling you in reference to the Information Technology Board of Appalachia, where I serve as chairman, emeritus, and one of the founders. Uh, my name is Tashaka. That is my African name, and that's what we use as we uh, decipher the plantation system, which is what our group is all about. Here in Ohio, um, we operate in Southeast San Diego. We also operate in Ghana, West Africa. And I understand that you are a a historian as well? Absolutely. Um, I trained under the Master Underground Railroad historian, Henry Robert Burke. And anyone could Google his name, Henry Robert Burke, B-U-R-K-E, 
and have access to this man's incredible research that he constructed out of uh, Marietta, Ohio, Southeast Ohio. Okay. Absolutely. And that was Henry Lavert. What was the last Henry name? Henry Robert Burke. Burke. Yes, sir. Burke. B U R K E. He's definitely, definitely the uh, unsung historian of our time. Unfortunately, uh, our brother passed away last year, but I would encourage anyone interested in the Underground Railroad, as it's written in the history of our families, which is chronicled by Henry Robert Burke. Okay. Do you have any other books to recommend? Well, I recommend his book. It's called The Escape of Jane. And if, well, he's written several if one were to Google his name or log on to his research, one could have access to a lot of history unknown by contemporary scholars. Uh, not only scholars, but to us folks here in the general public. Well, I got it ab- absolutely. What uh, what we've discovered is history, of course, um, has not really been told yet. We're just not getting to the gist if you will, of the situation. But the history of the Underground Railroad is written in the families. If we go through our families, if we study our families, we're going to get an accurate depiction of the Underground Railroad as it existed then and as it exists right now, which it does. Understand that there's a new Underground Railroad being established out on the West Coast, um, that formed after Michelle Alexander's book came out in reference to uh, mass incarceration and involves um, uh, female prisoners coming out of the prison system there in California. And um, they're establishing what they're calling the new Underground Railroad. You know, uh, that is news to me. Um, well, I don't, yeah, I mean, that's that's great. I'm saying that's a good thing. I'm not aware of that. Yeah, I'm speaking in in reference to the Underground Railroad that has been in motion and continues to be in motion to this very day. If you, uh, of course, everyone's heard of the Underground Railroad, of course, but no one has heard that it has stopped because it has not stopped. Mainstream society just stopped reporting on it, the efforts of people to be free. It never stopped. The Civil War didn't end the Underground Railroad. Exactly. Only the abolitionist movement stopped. And I'm like Frederick Douglass. I I don't agree with that. It didn't stop. And we see now. Yeah, the new escape. Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant. Yes, sir. Yeah, the new escape now is from uh, the slavery of the uh, prison system. Absolutely. No Uh, question. We uh, operate with the contention that the plantation is cognitive as is the escape route. These are quantifiable facts. It's all in our head, and it's in their head, too. And until we radically edu- re-educate ourselves, it's going to be in our head. It's going to be in their heads, those they mean those who oppress African people, whether they're black or white or whatever. If they're oppressors, they're just oppressors. But it's all in our head, and we have to get free mentally, of course, to break these psychological chains. Hence the reason we organized an organization, ITB, in Southeast Ohio. ITB. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Trayvon Martin case, if you've been uh, keeping up with that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, I, of course, we, uh, of course, the world is following Trayvon. Those who are conscious, because we've realized, of course, this is not, this is not one individual. He's representing the many thousands of Africans who have been lynched since we've been here. That's not it's, not, it's nothing new to us. We see it all the time, especially here in Ohio, where we have a history of unsolved murders that never hit mainstream society. And, of course, we have a serious problem in Chicago and other places. We also have a serious problem in rural America, and especially in Appalachia, which we never hear of. But it's going on daily. We're losing lots and lots of young people daily. And it's never reported, never stated. So, yes, uh, the Trayvon Martin case is extremely important. And I contend, of course, that boy, young man, was murdered by this individual, 
simply because he was suspicious. If you're black and male in America, you're suspicious. That does not mean you have the right to murder us in the street mm-hmm. or anywhere else without serious repercussions. Okay. And talk to me a little bit about Seth Conklin uh, that we're going to hear more about later yes, on. Sir, and I'm, I, I'm glad you mentioned that <clears throat> because, as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners may know, in the book by William Steele, The Underground Railroad, which is why we encourage people to do their own homework or research, even in the, the first chapter of the book, William Steele is talking about this guy, Seth Conklin. And if you read it or understand it, you know why. This, he's not a black man. It's a white man who who fought for freedom. This is a guy that went down south to get a family who he knew nothing about, just heard the story. Seth Conklin went down south, grabbed the family, to my understanding, was headed back up north, got to Indiana. They were caught. Of course, Seth never made it back. They found him on a riverbank, tied up, and murdered. Well, he pushed him for freedom. And he gave his life, and that should be understood. Whether he's black or white or whatever, he fought for freedom, and we should recognize that. So his name goes right up there with John Brown. William still says so himself, and I find that to be makes a lot of sense to me. And Seth I think volunteered. He volunteered for that duty, did he not? He wasn't absolutely. Paid. Well, I mean, he he read about it in the newspaper. And volunteered his services, and it cost him his life. We have to remember, these freedom is not free. We have to remember these people who are giving their lives so we can continue our mission, our mandate from our ancestors, which is to pursue freedom without compromise. Absolutely. Yeah, and Peter had been enslaved for 40 years, and, um, of course, he was the brother of William Steele. And That's right. Okay. And why do you think Seth's story is so important today? I think Seth's story is so important today, especially when I'm dealing with people who uh, claim to be conscious, yet at the very same time make statements like all white people are the devil, all white people are bad. This tells me you don't know your history. Seth. Seth Conklin's story tells us how important it is then and now that black and white people or anyone interested in freedom work together to make sure it happens. And I'm not seeing that happening today in 2013. I'm seeing, of course, black people. I'm a black African male, so I'm going to push for freedom every day, all day. But what I'm not seeing is white males pushing for freedom every day, as Seth Conklin did, and I think it's time for us to call them to the table. Where are the abolitionists today? That's what we So do you in the long run um, that everyone, it sounds like you're saying that all Americans should care about this story, and do you think if you put those together, John Brown, Seth Conklin, and uh, the Underground Railroads, do you think that's going to bring people together? Absolutely, because it tells the accurate story of uh, the Underground Railroad, which most people, they just when they hear the Underground Railroad, they think of it in terms of, oh, well, there were some people who wanted to be free and they were running away, which is, which is true. But what they don't see, it was a, and still is, a collective effort, a serious effort to guarantee the rights and the enfranchisement of the individuals who were stolen from our motherland, Africa. And we're not seeing that today. And I I have a big problem with that. I have a problem with that. My organization has a problem with that. And we need to handle that. We need to educate people. Bottom line, it takes a radical re-education of self to understand the mechanisms of the Underground Railroad then and now. Do you see any semblance in the Underground Railroad having any influence or impact on Obama's election in terms well, that's of... A good oh. <laughs> that's a good question. For me, I only see 
that in the sense that with Obama even running for president and being considered for president, it leads the average person to think that well, everything's okay. America is is a colorblind society. There's no racism in America. And people are actually saying this as if it were true. Uh, of course, it's not true. It's And it's terrible for us to even consider that. Meanwhile, we have African males dropping from city to city, coast to coast. I see no relevance in Obama being president only in that it does inspire people to achieve certain things, but it also takes us away from the reality of what's happening on the streets in America, and that is the murder of our people is happening. Murder, the incarceration is ridiculous. Here in Appalachian, Ohio, of course, and all over America. That's a fact. Well, Obama certainly uh, brought together uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, bringing a number of people from all races and political factions across all the political uh, spectrum to bring his election about. Um, any other words before we go to the clip? Uh, my only words would be the fact that, yeah, I would agree with what you're saying, but I would also agree with the fact that uh, in doing that and people uh, believing that everything is everything because of Obama, we're missing the fact that out here profiling people based on the color of their skin is alive and well. I don't hear Obama mentioning that, nor have I heard President Obama not not to disrespect him, however, it's disrespectful for the grandson of Malcolm X to be murdered, yet I've heard nothing from the President of the United States who is reportedly a black man. Mm-hmm. Please. You know, I also want to uh, mention and probably should have said that the Underground Railroad was the first Rainbow Coalition and that yes. it involved um, whites and blacks. Uh, fighting for freedom of those uh, Africans who were still being held in bondage. Um, so Jesse Jackson didn't have the first Rainbow Coalition that uh, was first established with the Underground Railroad. Of course not. Well, if we look at William Steele, Levi Coffey, there's, in fact, I'm standing right now on the first Martin Luther King Drive in America. Yet I guarantee your top scholars have no idea it even exists, let alone how it was created, let, in, let alone knowing that the people involved in creating this street were abolitionists and the street was first named after the cousin of John Brown. Of course, he's the martyr, 1859. But when you run these things by the top scholars, and we run them by the top scholars every now and then, well, their mouths drop wide open because they do not study families which created the Underground Railroad, and we do. Okay, uh, thank you, and we're uh, get our notebooks out and pens, and we're getting ready to go to the clip. William Still, the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 1. Seth Conklin, Part 1. In the long list of names who have suffered and died in the cause of freedom, not one, perhaps, could be found whose efforts to redeem a poor family of slaves were more Christ-like than Seth Conklin's, whose noble and daring spirit has been so long completely shrouded in mystery. Except John Brown, it is a question whether his rival could be found with respect to boldness, disinterestedness, and willingness to be sacrificed for the deliverance of the oppressed. By chance one day he came across a copy of the Pennsylvania Freeman containing the story of Peter Sill, the kidnapped and the ransomed. How he had been torn away from his mother when a little boy six years old. How, for forty years and more, he had been compelled to serve under the yoke, totally destitute as to any knowledge of his parents' whereabouts. How the intense love of liberty and desire to get back to his mother had unceasingly absorbed his mind through all these years of bondage. How... Amid the most appalling discouragements, prompted by his undying determination to be free and to be reunited with those from whom he had been sold away, he contrived to buy himself. How, by extreme economy, 
From doing overwork, he saved up $500, the amount of money required for his ransom, which, with his freedom, he, from necessity, placed unreservedly in the confidential keeping of a Jew named Joseph Friedman, whom he had known for a long time and could venture to trust. How he had further toiled to save up money to defray his expenses on an expedition in search of his mother and kindred. How, when this end was accomplished, with an earnest purpose, he took his carpet-bag in his hand, and his heart throbbing for his old home and people, he turned his mind very privately towards Philadelphia, where he hoped, by having notices read in the colored churches, to the effect that, forty-one or forty-two years before two little boys were kidnapped and carried south, that the memory of some of the older members might recall the circumstances, and in this way he would be aided in his ardent efforts to become restored to them. And, furthermore, Seth Conklin had read how, on arriving in Philadelphia, after traveling sixteen hundred miles, that almost the first man whom Peter Still had sought advice from was his own unknown brother, whom he had never seen or heard of, who made the discovery that he was the long-lost boy, whose history and fate had been enveloped in sadness so long, and for whom his mother had shed so many tears and offered so many prayers during the long years of their separation. And finally, how this self-ransomed and restored captive, notwithstanding his great success, was destined to suffer the keenest pangs of sorrow for his wife and children, whom he had left in Alabama bondage. Seth Conklin was naturally too singularly sympathetic and humane not to feel now for Peter, and especially for his wife and children, left in bonds as bound with them. Hence, as Seth was a man who seemed wholly insensible to fear, and to know no other law of humanity and right, then whenever the claims of suffering and the wrong appealed to him to respond unreservedly, whether those thus injured were amongst his nearest kin or the greatest strangers, it mattered not to what race or clime they might belong. He, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, owning all such as his neighbors, volunteered his services, without pay or regard, to go and rescue the wife and three children of Peter Still. The magnitude of this offer can hardly be appreciated, it was literally laying his life on the altar of freedom for the despised and oppressed whom he had never seen, whose kinsfolk even he was not acquainted with. At this juncture, even Peter was not prepared to accept this proposal. He wanted to secure the freedom of his wife and children as earnestly as he had ever desired to see his mother, yet he could not, at first, hearken to the idea of having them rescued in any way suggested by Conklin, fearing a failure. To J. M. McKim and the writer, the bold scheme for the deliverance of Peter's family was alone confided. It was never submitted to the Vigilance Committee, for the reason that it was not considered a matter belonging thereto. On first reflection, the very idea of such an undertaking seemed perfectly appalling. Frankly, he was told of the great dangers and difficulties to be encountered through hundreds of miles of slave territory. Seth was told of those who, in attempting to aid slaves to escape, had fallen victims to the relentless slave power and had either lost their lives or been incarcerated for long years in penitentiaries where no friendly aid could be afforded them. In short, he was plainly told that without a very great chance the undertaking would cost him his life. The occasion of this interview and conversation, the seriousness of Conklin and the utter failure in presenting the various obstacles to his plan, to create the slightest apparent misgivings in his mind, or to produce the slightest sense of fear or hesitancy, can never be effaced from the memory of the writer. The plan was, however, allowed to rest for a time. In the meanwhile, Peter's mind was continually vacillating between Alabama, with his wife and children, and his newfound relatives in the north. Said a brother, If you cannot get your family, what will you do? Will you come north and live with your relatives? I would as soon go out of the world as not go back and do all I can for them, was the prompt reply of Peter. But here obstacles quite formidably lay in the way. Alabama laws utterly denied the right of a slave to buy himself, much less his wife and children. The right of slave masters to free their slaves, either by sale or emancipation, was positively prohibited by law. With these reflections weighing upon his mind, having stayed away from his wife as long as he could content himself to do, he took his carpet-bag in his hand and turned his face toward Alabama to embrace his family in the prison-house of bondage. His approach home could only be made stealthily, not daring to breathe to a living soul, save his own family, his nominal Jew master, and one other friend, a slave, where he had been, 
the prize he had found, or anything in relation to his travels. To his wife and children his return was unspeakably joyous. The situation of his family concerned him with tenfold more weight than ever before. As the time drew near to make the offer to his wife's master to purchase her with his children, his heart failed him through fear of awakening the ire of slaveholders against him, as he knew that the law and public sentiment were alike deadly opposed to the spirit of freedom in the slave. Indeed, as innocent as a step in this direction might appear, in those days a man would have stood about as good a chance for his life in entering a lair of hungry hyenas as a slave or free-colored man would in talking about freedom. He concluded, therefore, to say nothing about buying. The plan proposed by Seth Conklin was told to Vina, his wife, also what he had heard from his brother about the Underground Railroad, how that many who could not get their freedom in any other way, by being aided a little, were daily escaping to Canada. Although his wife and children had never tasted the pleasures of freedom for a single hour in their lives, they hated slavery heartily, and being about to be so far separated from husband and father, they were ready to assent to any proposition that looked like deliverance. So Peter proposed to Vina that she should give him certain small articles, consisting of a cape, etc., which he would carry with him as memorials, and, in case Conklin or anyone else should ever come for her from him, as an unmistakable sign that all was right, he would send back, by whoever was to befriend them, the cape, so that she and the children might not doubt but have faith in the man, when he gave her the sign, cape. Again Peter returned to Philadelphia, and was now willing to accept the offer of Conklin. Ere long, the opportunity of an interview was had, and Peter gave Seth a very full description of the country and of his family, and made known to him that he had very carefully gone over with his wife and children the matter of their freedom. This interview interested Conklin most deeply. If his own wife and children had been in bondage, scarcely could he have manifested greater sympathy for them. For the hazardous work before him, he was at once prepared to make a start. True, he had two sisters in Philadelphia for whom he had always cherished the warmest affection, but he conferred not with them on this momentous mission. Full well did he know that it was not in human nature for them to acquiesce in this perilous undertaking, though one of these sisters, Mrs. Supley, was a most faithful abolitionist. Having once laid his hand to the plow, he was not the man to look back not even to bid his sisters good-bye, but he actually left them as though he expected to be home to his dinner as usual. What had become of him during those many weeks of his perilous labors in Alabama to rescue this family was to none a greater mystery than to his sisters. On leaving home he simply took two or three small articles in the way of apparel, with one hundred dollars to defray his expenses for a time, this sum he considered ample to start with. Of course he had very safely concealed about him Venus Cape, and one or two other articles which he was to use for his identification in meeting her and the children on the plantation. His first thought was, on reaching his destination, after becoming acquainted with the family, being familiar with southern manners, to have them all prepared at a given hour for the starting of the steamboat for Cincinnati, and to join him at the wharf, when he would boldly assume the part of slaveholder, and the family naturally that of slaves, and in this way he hoped to reach Cincinnati direct, before their owner had fairly discovered their escape. But alas for southern irregularity, two or three days' delay after being advertised to start was no uncommon circumstance with steamers. Hence this plan was abandoned. What this heroic man endured from severe struggles and unyielding exertions, in traveling thousands of miles on water and on foot, hungry and fatigued, rowing his living freight for seven days and seven nights in a skiff, is hardly to be paralleled in the annals of the Underground Railroad. The following interesting letters, penned by the hand of Conklin, convey minutely his last struggles, and characteristically represent the singleness of heart which impelled him to sacrifice his life for the slave. Eastport, Mississippi, February 3, 1851 To William Still Our friends in Cincinnati have failed finding anybody to assist me on my return. Searching the country opposite Paducah, I find that the whole country fifty miles around is inhabited only by Christian wolves. It is customary, when a strange negro is seen, for any white man to seize the negro and convey such negro through and out of the state of Illinois to Paducah, Kentucky, and lodge such stranger in Paducah jail, and there claim such reward as may be offered by the master. There is no regularity by the steamboats on the Tennessee River. 
I was four days getting to Florence from Paducah. Sometimes they are four days starting from the time appointed, which alone puts to rest the plan for returning by steamboat. The distance from the mouth of the river to Florence is between 305 to 345 miles by the river, by land 250 or more. I arrived at the shoe shop on the plantation, 1 o'clock, Tuesday, 28th. William and two boys were making shoes. I immediately gave the first signal, anxiously waited thirty minutes for an opportunity to give the second and main signal, during which time I was very sociable. It was rainy and muddy. My pants were rolled up to the knees. I was in the character of a man seeking employment in this country. End of thirty minutes gave the second signal. William appeared unmoved. Soon sent out the boys. Instantly sociable. Peter and Levin at the island one of the young masters with them, not safe to undertake to see them till Saturday night, when they would be at home, appointed a place to see Vina in an open field that night, they to bring me something to eat, our interview only four minutes. I left, appeared by night, dark and cloudy, at ten o'clock appeared William, exchanged signs, led me a few rods to where stood Vina, gave her the signal sent by Peter, our interview ten minutes, she did not call me master, nor did she say sir, by which I knew she had confidence in me. Our situation being dangerous, we decided that I meet Peter and Levin on the bank of the river early dawn of day, Sunday, to establish the laws. During our interview, William prostrated on his knees and face to the ground, arms sprawling, head cocked back, watching for wolves, by which position a man can see better in the dark. No house to go to safely traveled round till morning, eating hoe-cake which William had given me for supper. Next day going around to get employment. I thought of William, who is a Christian preacher, and of the Christian preachers in Pennsylvania. One watching for wolves by night, to rescue Vina and her three children from Christian licentiousness, the other standing erect in open day, seeking the praise of men. During the four days waiting for the important Sunday morning, I thoroughly surveyed the rocks and shoals of the river from Florence, seven miles up, where will be my place of departure? General notice was taken of me as being a stranger lurking around. Fortunately, there are several small grist mills within ten miles around. No taverns here, as in the north. Any planter's house entertains travelers occasionally. One night I stayed at a medical gentleman's, who is not a large planter. Another night at an ex-magistrate's house in South Florence, a Virginian by birth, one of the late census-takers, told me that many more persons cannot read and write than is reported. One fact, amongst many others, that many persons who do not know the letters of the alphabet have learned to write their own names. Such are generally reported readers and writers. It being customary for a stranger not to leave the house early in the morning where he has lodged, I was under the necessity of staying out all night Saturday to be able to meet Peter and Levin, which was accomplished in due time. When we approached, I gave my signal first. Immediately they gave theirs. I talked freely. Levin's voice, at first, evidently troubled. No wonder, for my presence universally attracted attention by the lords of the land. Our interview was less than one hour. The laws were written. I go to Cincinnati to get a rowing boat and provisions, a first-class clipper boat to go with speed, to depart from the place where the laws were written, on Saturday night of the 1st of March, I to meet one of them at the same place Thursday night, previous to the fourth Saturday from the night previous to the Sunday when the laws were written. We were to go down the Tennessee River to some place upon the Ohio, not yet decided on, in our rowboat. Peter and Levin are good oarsmen. So am I. Telegraph station at Tuscumbia, twelve miles from the plantation, also at Paducah. Came from Florence to here Sunday night by steamboat. Eastport is in Mississippi waiting here for a steamboat to go down, paying one dollar a day for board. Like other taverns here, the wretchedness is indescribable. No pen, ink, paper, or newspaper to be had. Only one room for everybody, except the gambling rooms. It is difficult for me to write. Vina intends to get a pass for Catherine and herself for the first Sunday in March. The bank of the river where I met Peter and Levin is two miles from the plantation. I have avoided saying I am from Philadelphia, also avoided talking about Negroes. I never talked so much about milling before. I consider most of the trouble over till I arrive in a free state with my crew the first week in March. 
then will have to be wiser than Christian serpents and more cautious than doves. I do not consider it safe to keep this letter in my possession, yet I dare not put it in the post office here. There is so little business in these post offices that notice might be taken. I am evidently watched. Everybody knows me to be a miller. I may write again when I get to Cincinnati, if I should have time. The ex-magistrate, with whom I stayed in South Florence, held three hours' talk with me, exclusive of our morning talk, is a man of good general information. I was exceedingly inquisitive. I am from Cincinnati, formerly from the state of New York. I had no opportunity to get anything to eat from seven o'clock Tuesday morning till six o'clock Wednesday evening, except the hoe-cake and no sleep. Florence is the head of navigation for small steamboats. Seven miles, all the way up to my place of departure, is swift water and rocky. Eight hundred miles to Cincinnati. I found all things here, as Peter told me, except the distance of the river. South Florence contains twenty white families, three warehouses of considerable business, a post office, but no school. McKiernan is here, waiting for a steamboat to go to New Orleans, so we are in company. 2. Seth Conklin, Part 2. Houston, Gibson County, Indiana, February 18, 1851. 2. William Still. The plan is to go to Canada, on the Wabash, opposite Detroit. There are four routes to Canada, one through Illinois, commencing above and below Alton, one through to North Indiana, and the Cincinnati route, being the longest route in the United States. I intended to have gone through Pennsylvania, but the risk going up the Ohio River has caused me to go to Canada. Steamboat traveling is universally condemned, though many go in boats, consequently many get lost. Going in a skiff is new, and is approved of in my case. After I arrive at the mouth of the Tennessee River, I go up the Ohio 75 miles to the mouth of the Wabash, then up the Wabash 44 miles to New Harmony, where I shall go ashore by night, and go 13 miles east to Charles Greer, a farmer, colored man, who will entertain us, and the next night convey us 16 miles to David Storman, near Princeton, who will take the command, and I be released. David Storman estimates the expenses from his house to Canada at $40, without which no sure protection will be given. They might be instructed concerning the course and beg their way through without money. If you wish to do what should be done, you will send me $50 in a letter to Princeton, Gibson County, Indiana, so as to arrive there by the 8th of March. Eight days should be estimated for a letter to arrive from Philadelphia. The money to be State Bank of Ohio or State Bank or Northern Bank of Kentucky, or any other Eastern Bank. Send no notes larger than $20. Levi Coffin had no money for me. I paid $20 for this gift. No money to get back to Philadelphia. It was not understood that I would have to be at any expense seeking aid. One half of my time has been used in trying to find persons to assist when I may arrive on the Ohio River, in which I have failed, except Storman. Having no letter of introduction to Storman from any source, on which I could fully rely, I traveled 200 miles around to find out his stability. I have found many abolitionists, nearly all of whom have made propositions, which themselves would not comply with, and nobody else would. Already I have traveled over 3,000 miles, 2,400 by steamboat, 200 by railroad, 100 by stage, 400 on foot, 48 in a skiff. I have yet 500 miles to go to the plantation to commence operations. I have been two weeks on the decks of steamboats, three nights out, two of which I got perfectly wet. If we had had paper money, as McKim desired, it would have been destroyed. I have not been entertained gratis at any place except Storman's. I had $126 when I left Philadelphia, 100 from you, 26 mine. Telegraph to station at Evansville, 33 miles from Stormans, and at Vinclure's, 25 miles from Stormans. The Wabash route is considered the safest route. No one has ever been lost from Stormans to Canada. Some have been lost between Stormans and the Ohio. The wolves have never suspected Storman. Your asking aid in money for a case properly belonging east of Ohio is detested. If you have sent money to Cincinnati, you should recall it. I will have no opportunity to use it. Seth Conklin Princeton, Gibson County, Indiana. P.S. 
First of April will be about the time Peter's family will arrive opposite Detroit. You should inform yourself how to find them there. I may have no opportunity. I will look promptly for your letter at Princeton till the 10th of March, and longer if there should have been any delays by the mails. In March, as contemplated, Conklin arrived in Indiana, at the place designated, with Peter's wife and three children, and sent a thrilling letter to the writer, portraying in the most vivid light his adventurous flight from the hour they left Alabama until their arrival in Indiana. In this report he stated that instead of starting early in the morning, owing to some unforeseen delay on the part of the family, they did not reach the designated place till towards day, which greatly exposed them in passing a certain town which he had hoped to avoid. But as his brave heart was bent on prosecuting his journey without further delay, he concluded to start at all hazards, notwithstanding the dangers he apprehended from passing said town by daylight. For safety he endeavored to hide his freight by having them all lie flat down on the bottom of the skiff, covered with blankets, concealing them from the effulgent beams of the early morning sun, or rather from the Christian wolves who might perchance espy him from the shore in passing the town. The wind blew fearfully. Conklin was rowing heroically when loud voices from the shore hailed him, but he was utterly deaf to the sound. Immediately two or three guns were fired in the direction of the skiff, but he heeded not the significant call. Consequently, here ended this difficulty. He supposed, as the wind was blowing so hard, those on shore who hailed him must have concluded that he did not hear them and that he meant no disrespect in treating them with seeming indifference. Whilst many straits and great dangers had to be passed, this was the greatest before reaching their destination. But suffice it to say that the glad tidings which this letter contained filled the breast of Peter with unutterable delight and his friends and relations with wonder beyond degree. Footnote. In some unaccountable manner, this last letter Conklin ever penned, perhaps, has been unfortunately lost. End footnote. No fond wife had ever waited with more longing desire for the return of her husband than Peter had for this blessed news. All doubts had disappeared, and a well-grounded hope was cherished that within a few short days Peter and his fond wife and children would be reunited in freedom on the Canada side, and that Conklin and the friends would be rejoicing with joy unspeakable over this great triumph. But alas, before the few days had expired, the subjoined brief paragraph of news was discovered in the morning ledger. Runaway Negroes Caught At Vincennes, Indiana, on Saturday last, a white man and four Negroes were arrested. The Negroes belonged to B. McKiernan of South Florence, Alabama, and the man who was running them off calls himself John H. Miller. The prisoners were taken charge of by the Marshal of Evansville, April 9th. How suddenly these sad tidings turned into mourning and gloom, the hope and joy of Peter and his relations no pen could possibly describe. At least the writer will not attempt it here, but will at once introduce a witness who met the noble Conklin and the panting fugitives in Indiana and proffered them sympathy and advice. And it may safely be said from a truer and more devoted friend of the slave they could not have received counsel. Evansville, Indiana March 31, 1851 William Still Dear Sir, On last Tuesday I mailed a letter to you written by Seth Conklin. I presume you have received that letter. It gave an account of his rescue of the family of your brother. If that is the last news you have had from them, I have very painful intelligence for you. They passed on from near Princeton, where I saw them and had a lengthy interview with them, up north, I think twenty-three miles above Vincennes, Indiana, where they were seized by a party of men and lodged in jail. Telegraphic dispatches were sent all through the South. I have since learned that the Marshal of Evansville received a dispatch from Tuscumbia to look out for them. By some means, he and the master, so says report, went to Vincennes and claimed the fugitives, chained Mr. Conklin, and hurried all off. Mr. Conklin wrote to Mr. David Storman, Princeton, as soon as he was cast into prison. To find bail. So soon as we got the letter and could get off, two of us were about setting off to render all possible aid, when we were told they all had passed, a few hours before, through Princeton, Mr. Conklin in chains. What kind of process was had, if any, I know not. I immediately came down to this place, and learned that they had been put on a boat at 3 p.m., did not arrive until 6. Now all hopes of their recovery are gone. No case ever so enlisted my sympathies, 
I had seen Mr. Conklin in Cincinnati. I had given him aid and counsel. I happened to see them after they landed in Indiana. I heard Peter and Levin tell their tale of suffering, shed tears of sorrow for all of them. But now, since they have fallen prey to the unmerciful bloodhounds of this state, and have been again dragged back to unrelenting bondage, I am entirely unmanned. And poor Conklin, I fear for him. When he is dragged back to Alabama, I fear they will go far beyond the utmost rigor of the law, and vent their savage cruelty upon him. It is with pain I have to communicate these things, but you may not hear them from him. I could not get to see him or them, as Vincennes is about thirty miles from Princeton, where I was when I heard of the capture. I take pleasure in stating that, according to the letter he, Conklin, wrote to Mr. D. Stewart, Mr. Conklin did not abandon them, but risked his own liberty to save them. He was not with them when they were taken, but went afterwards to take them out of jail upon a writ of habeas corpus, when they seized him too and lodged him in prison. I write in much haste. If I can learn any more facts of importance, I may write you. If you desire to hear from me again, or if you should learn anything specific from Mr. Conklin, be pleased to write me at Cincinnati, where I expect to be in a short time. If curious to know your correspondent, I may say I was formerly editor of the New Concord Free Press, Ohio. I only add that every case of this kind only tends to make me abhor my, no, this country more and more. It is the devil's government, and God will destroy it. Yours for the slave, N.R. Johnston. P.S. I broke open this letter to write you some more. The foregoing pages were written at night. I expected to mail it the next morning before leaving Evansville, but the boat for which I was waiting came down about three in the morning, so I had to hurry on board, bringing the letter along. As it now is, I am not sorry, for coming down, on my way to St. Louis, as far as Paducah, there I learned from a colored man at the wharf that, that same day, in the morning, the master and the family of fugitives arrived off the boat and had then gone on their journey to Tuscumbia, but that the white man, Mr. Conklin, had got away from them about twelve miles upriver. It seems he got off the boat some way, near or at Smithland, Kentucky, a town at the mouth of the Cumberland River. I presume the report is true, and hope he will finally escape, though I was also told they were in pursuit of him. Would that the others had also escaped. Peter and Levin could have done so, I think, if they had had resolution. One of them rode a horse, he not tied, either, behind the coach in which the others were. He followed, apparently, contented and happy. From report they told their master, and even their pursuers, before the master came, that Conklin had decoyed them away. They came unwillingly. I write on a very unsteady boat. Yours, N. R. Johnston. End of section 2 Well, welcome back, everyone. You just uh, completed listening to a reading of a William Steele book, The Underground Railroad, outlining the story of Seth Conklin, who was attempting, who was murdered, captured and murdered, uh, for his attempts to free the brother of William Steele, Peter Gist. Deal. Uh, what's your take on it, Darnell? It's <clears throat> that entire story is just incredible. The kidnapped and the ransomed. Um, as a historian, as a person, I can really appreciate the fact that William Steele took the time to document the Underground Railroad so thoroughly, even when at, at the risk of his life. And these people really loved us. They really loved freedom. And they really showed it every day, all day. And I think that should be understood and taught from from the cradle to the grave all over the world as it has an effect all over the world. It's, it's an incredible story. It's, and we all, we all should learn from it, And which is why I really, I really uh, can appreciate uh, what, what Seth Conklin tried to do. Yeah, I was very impressed with the uh, the strength of the family, uh, in spite of the efforts of the slave aristocracy, 
to destroy the family. And uh, it showed that the family bonds were very, very, very strong. Um, so do you recall yeah. that there was a, um, uh, some sort of rift in the fact that Peter uh, was an enslaved and was only emancipated after 40 years while his little brother William uh, was born free? I would imagine that would create all sorts of emotions in uh, Mr. Gift and the entire family. I'm not as versed on that area as I'm sure you are, but I would love to learn more about the Gift family. In fact, uh, the Gift settlement in southwest Ohio, which is something that uh, our children growing up in Ohio do not get as they study Ohio history. And this is something that we really, uh, really are adamant about changing which, of course, empowers all all the children. It's, yeah. It's uh, uh, Darnell, are you on a uh, Bluetooth? Uh, I'm on a landline. Are you uh, not receiving me well? I heard there may be some you're, static involved. You were a little bit muffled there. Uh, you might want to put the uh, receiver a little closer. Okay. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, that's a little better, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I guess there was some rift uh, within the family. Uh, they had different views on how to rescue the enslaved family. Uh, was that, um, did you pick up that there was a rift between uh, Conklin and William Steele on how to go about it? Well, what I picked up was that there was real, there was, controversy, yes, in terms of how to go about it, what I got ultimately was there was no way to safely go about it, and there would be no wrong way. And what I got from William Steele's conversations, which he documented well, was that all they could basically do was uh, wish this man uh, many blessings and good luck, knowing full well that the odds of him surviving, and of course the family surviving, were very, very low. Um, in hindsight, we can, of course, look back and say, well, they should have or could have done this or whatnot. But if we put ourselves in that context, it had to be really, the family had to be torn, as well as the community and those who, who cared about freeing uh, persons who were considered chattel. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's worthy yeah. of much more research, much more. Yeah, and a further uh, reflection on that, if uh, Conklin and still were in alignment with one another, and it was Peter. And Peter wanted to pay the ransom. I believe it was $500, mm-hmm. the, what they called the ransom, and which would have freed his uh, family, but he didn't want to risk anyone's life. And that was the reason he was willing to to pay that. Uh, then again, the person that owned uh, Peter... Uh, am I correct that he did not respond to the letter written by his brother, William Steele, when he offered maybe some alternatives, that there was mm-hmm. silence on the matter? Okay. Uh, earlier, you mentioned the Gist Settlement. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? Well, uh, I'm not the Gist Settlement uh, expert, but I do realize uh-huh. how Southwest Ohio operates as well as Southeast Ohio during the time of the Underground Railroad. And it appears to me that the Gist family <clears throat> did what many of us should have done then and should be doing now, which is keeping the legacy of the Underground Railroad alive. For, for them to settle in that portion of America's piece of volumes concerning the number of, of freedmen who were in the Cincinnati area, in the Hamilton County area, leading up toward, of course, Canada, um, the Gist settlement is something that we really or I really need to study in detail. In fact, I was just through there two days ago, beginning the research, and I understand there's a marker missing uh, from that location, which uh, to me is very terrible. We need to replace the marker and make sure these things are preserved as they stand. Is it uh, any effort uh, underway to make it a national historical uh, spot? Well, that's interesting that you would mention that, 
because we're actively uh, making the, we are acknowledging a uh, underground railroad stop here in the town that I'm in now today, which is Newcomers Town, Ohio. If I were to be given the permission from the guest family, whether in writing or in or verbally, we can make that part of our mission to see that that is done. Um, absolutely. It needs to be done, and I, I don't see any problem getting it done. We have enough people throughout Ohio who are historians, who are researchers, and we can actually galvanize them to make this happen, and I believe we should. Okay. I also made a note here of uh, the uh, the intricate planning that went into uh, this escape and rescue uh, down to the Cape that the wife was uh, getting her information that whoever presented this cake could be trusted, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was uh, uh, very detailed. and uh, Yes, amazing. Well, and as you know, uh, Africans left trails in all sorts of little ways, uh, just, with, just like with the, uh, with the uh, scarf that Mr. Conklin was to present to us. Uh, the wife of of uh, Peter Guest. Mm-hmm. Little intricate things that are found all along the trail of the Underground Railroad that are written into the families. Uh, the families in Ohio, uh, most people, a lot of these people were were, were freed people. In fact, um, most of the Africans today in Southeast Ohio are descendants of the Carter Plantation, which was actually the largest emancipation of slaves in American history, Carter being extremely rich and a friend of both Jefferson and George Washington. And the people are still here, and they've kept many, many records. In fact, we have griots here who can actually speak extemporaneously of the entire uh, Southwest, Southeast Ohio Underground Railroad Trail. It would be my honor to link you with them and we can continue our research and expose the intricacies of the Underground Railroad in order to teach not only uh, our children, meaning uh, descendants of former chattel, but the entire country who has failed in 2013 to recognize, to understand, and to appreciate the Underground Railroad. Exactly. Still, and, um, that's just a fact. Uh, our and group of people really changed that. You mentioned earlier, too, that a marker at the Gist uh, settlement had been missing. Any thought to using uh, social media as a way to raise funds, uh, raise money to replace that marker? You know, given the age of information, and I do represent the Information Technology Board of Appalachia, that is certainly something that we are willing to become involved in. Again, we work exclusively within the community for the families. If the families were to say, hey, we want you guys to, uh, and girls, women, we're all grown people, grandparents, to investigate this, to do what you can to replace the marker, uh, we will be compelled to see that that is done. Our success record in, in, in utilizing the Underground Railroad's mandate uh, is quite extensive and quite real, and is documented, we would be honored to ensure that that is replaced. Okay. Well, I'm sure Leslie Gitz will be willing to come down there to Ohio and do a live show from there. Uh, do you have any uh, closing words and contact information for you? Yes, sir. Uh, I can. Yes, we have a Facebook page, ITB Ohio, ITB, Information Technology Board, Ohio, or itbohio at gmail.com. Okay. And a closing thought? My closing thought would be we must ensure that we keep the legacy of the Underground Railroad alive. Period. And we're with you on that, Darnell, and we support you on that. And I'm sure Leslie Guest, our executive producer, will be in touch with you. I appreciate your joining us tonight here on the Guest of Freedom. Um, 
at www.blogtalkradio. I want to remind our listeners that they can also pick up archived uh, programs via iTunes, free of charge, at blackhistoryuniversity.com. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host, and we'll see you here again the next time. Thanks a lot, Darnell. Thank you, sir. Okay, good night. Thank you.